Paola Antonelli is an Italian author, editor, and curator. Based in New York, she is the senior curator of the Department of Architecture and Design, as well as the director of R&D at the Museum of Modern Art. An architect trained at the Polytechnic University of Milan, she is also a prolific author and speaker, and has curated shows at MoMA and other international institutions. Design Anthology's managing editor, Simone Schultz, sat down with Paola for a conversation during Singapore Design Week in September. This is the Design Dialogues. So, Paola, yesterday was the Design Futures Symposium, which you curated and organized and basically ran. Congrats on such a successful event. It was so inspiring. Thank you. Quite optimistic. So good to be immersed with people and ideas after so long. Um, I loved it. What were some of your initial thoughts or key takeaways? It's now the day after... You know, there's, um, it's so hard to have thoughts <laughs> when you've worked so intensely for so long and then it happens. But um, I have to say, my initial thought was, did we accomplish what we wanted to accomplish? And uh, the director of the design festival, Mark Wee, and then the two great collaborators that I had, Narelle Yabuka and Judea Chong, we were really, our agenda was to seed plant seeds in the minds of many people in the audience because it was not only design and mm. designers mm. you know there were many people from agencies there were many people that were coming from corporations and that's always the mission right to make sure that they understand that design is not only cute chairs but instead it's an active and fundamental tool to build policy to design cities to design also chairs if you really need to design chairs so I think that we accomplished that and um, uh, and as usual I like to pack a lot by having bursts of, com- of of like presentations and then conversations so everybody's on their toes and 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 it moves quickly and i i think i'm very proud of the assortment and i was tr- i was really um particularly hit by certain speakers but i have to say first and foremost the biggest accomplishment was to have also professor lim Seong wan in uh, among the speakers because he's so revered in singapore that having him in a design symposium talking about singapore as a design project all of a sudden gave a different tone to the whole afternoon and evening and so people paid attention because we had him as a standard bearer so yeah we did a good job (laughs) certainly you did um I do think he set a standard yesterday but the way that he was talking he was quite relaxed and so it almost made everyone feel like we were you know he belonged they really took ownership on the stage I think and it kind of made us all feel a part of a a bigger conversation. And just for your audience so they know who we're talking about he was a personal secretary to Lee Kuan Yew and then he was the head the director of the whole civil service so we're talking about a revered national treasure. 
and for our listeners then as well, the videos are going to be up soon. So even if they weren't here, they can still watch them. You talked just briefly now about the range of people in the audience, but also the range of speakers and topics. It was so broad and so rich. There really was a richness because of that. Um, And you are obviously the senior curator um, of the Department of Architecture and Design and the director of R&D at MoMA in New York. So as a curator, what do you think about the role of curiosity, this wide range of interests and and not being focused on just one thing? How does that kind of... uh, inform your practice what do you think of that well my twitter handle has been for more than 12 years curious octopus <laughs> now but i believe design is um that the, the discipline of design is about synthesis so you you bring together many different needs and many different ideas contexts and many different specialties you create teams so curiosity is fundamental really fundamental. And the ability of bringing many different uh, elements together is also fundamental. So that's what I try to do every time I create a public program, because I create, curate, you can say it however you want. I try to bring together many different sources and ideas that people might not normally put together. That's my job as a curator. I'm a trusted tourist guide, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm a trusted tour guide that, that tries to bring people to places that they don't know yet. And by doing so also maybe steer them in a different direction. Um, I like the image of an octopus sort of with eight, eight tentacles and eight different pies that must make you quite resourceful. And you've talked before about being resourceful. You'd have to be. Uh, how important to you is resourcefulness as a quality, as a curator? It's my life. Um, that's what I've done in my 28, almost 29 years at MoMA. You know, I have this amazing platform. Uh, I have millions of visitors. Most of them are there to see Matisse and Picasso. Then they stumble upon a design show and they stay there for two hours. So my resourcefulness is in getting the opportunity to do shows and in sneaking through every kind of like fissures that is available. And uh, and I'm, I'm very resourceful and uh, uh, I think that resourcefulness for contemporary curators is fundamental. I believe your father was a surgeon and you started out studying economics. Do you think some of those things that you've learned from that background is important to understanding the world of architecture and design? Very much. Uh, last night I was talking with Michaela Magas, who, who was one of the presenters during the symposium. She, her father was a very well-known architect from what used to be at that time Yugoslavia. And she said that at age nine, she was on, on his lap and watched him draw. And at age nine, I was in the OR watching my dad do surgery. So, And I was drawing all the larynxes and mm. cochlea slides for his lectures. So I think that you're formed a certain way. I still have a passion for medicine and I have a passion for analyzing analyzing and healing and when it comes to economics oh my it's so useful so useful for good and for bad it informs uh, the way I look at the world it informs the way I consider the cultural sector which I find incredibly important for the destinies of a society but always discounted when it comes to a comparison with the financial or the industrial sectors so I can I can speak the language and and kind of uh, bring it up. And also it informs um, the way I think we should make design more palatable to people that don't think it's palatable yet. So the problem of not only design, but the whole cultural sector not having metrics 
that are immediately usable in, I don't know, sp political speeches or policy that is only three, four, five years away is a big limitation. If we could find the right metrics, we could also have a more widespread adoption of design and architecture. So you see, maybe it's not directly influencing the way I look at design and architecture, but it certainly is influencing my advocacy of the disciplines. That was particularly interesting yesterday, how policy and kind of top level structures were integrated with real design talk. That segues quite nicely to some of the controversial or non-traditional acquisitions um, that have happened at MoMA under your under your watch. Um, thinking of the emojis, the rainbow flag, the ad symbol, the Google Maps pin, some fonts, uh, certain things to do with video games. Um, yesterday I saw you raise your hand really high when Delisha said, who watched Travis <laughs> Scott's show? You were like, me, me. Um, and about, you know, is the metaverse the future? Um, and there also obviously yesterday there was a lot of what is not traditionally considered design and obviously not another cute chair. So can you can you elaborate on this broadening, throwing open wide what is design? And um, how, firstly, how do you go about acquiring works like the at symbol, the rainbow pride flag that don't necessarily belong to one person? Some of them like the flag belong to everyone by their definition. Um, who actually owns those things and, and what makes them museum worthy? Well, it, it is interesting because um, the fact that these objects are controversial is a surprise to me. So when I do these acquisitions, the intent is never to provoke for the sake of provoking. I really do believe without any efforts that they are great design objects. And maybe it comes from my education in Milan at a time where we were 15,000 students only in architectural school. You know, So we were so many and many would not even graduate and some others would become fashion designers, chefs. You know, It was just like this mother of all creative disciplines. And so I've never really really separated design from architecture, objects from interfaces. It's always been quite natural for me to consider them all as part of the same big family. So the ad sign, for instance, uh, actually, I, I was so happy when I discovered its history because I started looking at it just there. You know, sometimes it's just out of observations. I spend my life as if I were in a Looney Tunes cartoon, you know, in which the fire hydrants say hello and, you know, all the objects are universes. So I was looking at this ad sign and I started doing research. I'm not going to go into a disquisition about it now, but it exists since the Middle Ages it was like used by the, the the monks copying manuscripts and it remained throughout history with the same meaning for which we use today, which is to connect something to something, name to computer, name to position on the internet, on the server. So it's fabulous when you see an object that has it all, right? It has form, it has function, it has a history, it has this continuity, this sense of modernity, and moreover is in the public domain, it's fantastic. So if something is, the public, is in the public domain, should I, as a curator, not put it in the collection? What is my job? Is my job to take things and then grab them and possess them and I can own them and nobody else? Well, no, I'm a design curator, so that's already kind of not the way it works. But the fact that it's in the public domain means that it's not even an acquisition, it's an anointment of sorts. 
and anybody can have it. So it's really an example of great design that anybody can have. As far as the rainbow flag is concerned, it's an amazing symbol. Um, it's such a strong design. You know, it's when Gilbert Baker designed it, it, it was just this amazing organic uh, gush of his emotion and gush of the needs of a community that wanted to protest discrimination against gay. And it, it's also a gush of his own manuality and craftsmanship, he and his friends. And so, and then he was adopted by the whole world. I mean, isn't that what great design is? So to me, it's quite natural. Emojis, hello, they're a means of communication that has become a language of its own and that we use every day all over the world. Video games, great example of interaction design. You know, So to me, these are no-brainers. And I always found it funny that people found them controversial. And usually the people that found them controversial are people that were threatened uh, by their power. You know, some art critics uh, that will remain unnamed here, but you can find out immediately that reacted with terror at the idea that Pac-Man would be next to Picasso. And I was thinking, wow, there's three, three floors, first of all. And also, at his time, Picasso probably was considered like he considers Pac-Man today. So it's just, um, it's just my job to look at contemporary design and to create this. I was telling you that curators are great tour guides that have earned the trust of the public. That's my job, right? So that's what I show, a tour. Talking again about all of these various kinds of design, emojis, digital concerts, uh, policy, urban planning, uh, food waste plans, um, what Michaela from MTF Labs yesterday was speaking about, about using sound to bridge uh, what we think of differently abled people's abilities. Um, what is a designer? How do we define that position at now? And I wonder if, d does your passion for healing that you just mentioned, does that come into that definition when you think about it? Of course. And you know, definitions of design never work. <laughs> so you need to have a thousand to kind of get somewhere. And I know that right now in, in these next few days at the London Design Festival, there's going to be a launch of a pamphlet that I contributed to also in the honor of Sir John Sorrell with definitions of design. And I'm sure, I bet that none will be satisfying. Um, my own, I don't really define, but I set my own limits at the, at the five senses, maybe the, also the six and seven perhaps. Um, I set my own limit there so I don't go into pure you know, system design or infrastructure design. But, you know, you can consider music and sound, of course, design, scent. I mean, in 2010, I did a whole symposium about scent as a form of design, and the, the exhibition of Cecil Tola's work is opening, has opened, I think, yesterday at the ICA in Philadelphia. So, really, there's hardly any limit um, of, of implementation, application, and scale. What I consider design, however, is creativity applied to the world, to other people, to other species, to uh, other con contexts and situations. So artists sometimes work as designers, indeed, when they decide to put something in the world for as many people as possible. Again, we're, you know, we're obviously talking about broadening that definition. The definition is fluid. It changes based on who's talking about it and for what purposes. Do we need to think about the way that we 
think about design as a problem-solving discipline. Um, how do you think all of these different things fit together in a in a kind of design ecosystem? And how do they all coexist if they have different purposes? Some some more necessary than others, obviously. So think of the ecosystem of movies, for instance. You know, something that is really popular that people understand and want. So there are different people that live in this ecosystem. There's people who make movies. There's director people who who think of movies there's people who watch movies some of these people watch every movie available some of those people watch only very brainy movies but it's a whole ecosystem that also reaches the people it happens also with music it happens with food and normally people understand what a chef does what a what a director of photography does or you know it's that's what I want for design so what I want for design is for designers to be proud of what they do to communicate their pride and the beauty of what they do to a white audience but I also want people to know what's behind an object that's really the big difference I wish that people started going through life as if they were in a Looney Tunes cartoon I wish that they paid attention to the fire hydrant and to the new signage that the city just put up and protest if they don't like it. So that's what I want to achieve. I want to achieve the same level of awareness and appreciation for the sphere and the ecosystem of design that exists for the ecosystem of movies or, or food and many others. And moving away from uh, just understanding design as chairs, I guess, as well, right? Well, that's for <laughs> sure, or embellishment, you know. Yeah. So that's, um, that's one, of the, one of the biggest... Um, topic of discussion is how or or big topic of thought for me how do I really make sure that people that are in positions of power whether it's in a corporation or a government or anywhere else understand that they should have a designer at the table because so long as they think as designer of designers as makers of cute chairs they're not going to take them seriously or, or they're going to take them seriously for the wrong reasons and you know what there's designers of all kinds and designers that design chairs might also be great at designing policy. So that's what I want. Literacy, understanding, awareness, and just more familiarity with design. Mm -hmm. And certainly putting those people in a design environment, even the other way around, bringing them into the conversation as well, giving them a seat at the table, at the design table, which is kind of what you were doing yesterday. And, and I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Um, you know, we talk about design as problem solving and, and that design in all its uh, iterations are we suggesting that design can save the world do you think that that's accurate or do you think it's too much pressure to put on one small group whenever I hear that design can save the world I'm, I was like no no calm down uh -uh, no not gonna happen uh, design by itself cannot save the world neither can science neither can politics I mean only collaborating uh, across disciplines will that be uh, possible and I'm sorry that it sounds like a platitude but it's absolutely true there's no way that one discipline can do it all. So the, what designers are good at is bringing together teams, and that's why they should be used better and more. But I think that uh, by itself, design cannot save the world. On the other hand, it can help also change behaviors. It can help steer the, 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 in the right direction. It can do a lot. And what is, uh, what is MoMA doing to decentralize or decolonize even the narrative around design? Not only around design, but around um, art, all mm -hmm. sorts of arts. For the past, I wish I, can, I could tell you the exact number of years, but it's more than 10 years. We have organized very structured uh, research threads, I would say, like programs, serious programs, to look at other 
histories of modern, um, starting from, you know, we looked at Eastern Europe, we looked at Southeast Asia, you know, recently we had an exhibition about Southeast Asia architecture uh, from, you know, just like until 1980. So there was, there's a lot, there's like really programmed and programmatic ways to make sure that that happens. Um, the first step starts with understanding your lacunae, which is something that I think we did, and we're working on it really seriously, like all of the curators at MoMA are working on it. And now that we're coming out of, I laughed yesterday when you showed a picture of um, people, were the the work the work exhibition that you uh, that you oh, curated. The work spheres, yes. Yeah, and um, and then I was just like, wow, that's me now. <laughs> like, yeah, this exactly. is whatever, 20 years later, or no, I guess. Yeah, 2000, from 2001, tw- yeah. 21 years later. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it just reminded, it just brought that the cyclical nature of now we're working from home, working from bed, but that, that was happening then and probably before that even. Um, but now, what have you seen coming out of this pandemic, this moment in time? What kind of innovations um, have you witnessed or are you taking note of? So much. And if I can do a little plug, I can plug Design Emergency, which is this great project that I run with Alice Rothorn that started during the pandemic. We started interviewing on Instagram, these great designers, or great, sometimes accidental designers, because sometimes they were anesthesiologists, but people that were working to really provide design contribution to the crisis of the pandemic from the illustrators at the CDC that created the, the branding for the coronavirus to the anesthesiologist that split the ventilator and so on and so forth. Um, but all of these innovations that were out of necessity and instantly, uh, stayed with us and this whole idea of making the world a better place and for everyone I think stayed with us after the pandemic. I could go through the whole list of innovations that you've heard before, more familiarity with public, with being in public online and Zoom and platforms and are people alienated and so on and so forth. I'm going to just tell you one that touches me very personally. New York has much, many more bike lanes. <laughs> I love that. I mean, there are some, some improvements that I'm sure you could find in your own city that are one of the few silver linings of a catastrophe that personally was just psychological and I was lucky, right? For some people, it was a tremendous catastrophe. They lost loved ones and they lost jobs. For me, it was not that way. It was only only psychological. But I have to say that there are enduring scars that will remain forever, but some of those scars will make the world a more interesting and more um, maybe compassionate place. Would you mind talking about compassion, going back to something you mentioned, your passion for healing? Can you talk about that? Um, From every exhibition and every program, I learned something, and sometimes those lessons are huge. And when I did the 22nd Triennale di Milano, that was called Broken Nature, um, I was maybe in a different setting, my, my city where I grew up and it was the, the, the place, the building where I started my career. Maybe I was more emotional to begin with, but I curated an exhibition that was very moving without realizing, um, sometimes even like teary. And I, you know, I didn't do it on purpose. Like, you know, I had a few pieces that were strategically put. And then at the end, I had this Patricia Piccinini sculpture of the two creatures hugging each other and and everybody was crying there my father and my mother were crying there and I'm like oh my god what have I done I was so afraid of having done the wrong thing and instead 
people were coming to me saying that the exhibition was moving and you don't expect that from a design show usually. And also the kids that were doing the Fridays for the future, you know, that were stri uh, striking from school on Fridays and, and marching, they would gather at my show and start the marches from there. So I realized the enormous power that emotion can have. I mean, I sound like Thomas yesterday, but he was talking about buildings. I'm talking about exhibitions of design. Usually they are, if not clinical, they're amusing, entertaining, revealing, moving not that often that's more for art and and other disciplines so i've learned that and i it'll stay with me not i, I, I won't make every exhibition pathetic or like you know <laughs> yeah, moving, but yeah. Mm -hmm. talking about innovations uh and materiality what do you think is happening in the future of materials well it's interesting because the very first show that i did at moma was called Mutant Materials in Contemporary Design, and it was about materials, and that was 95. At that time, uh, it, it was a big shift because all of a sudden there were new materials that enabled designers to actually design the materials themselves without going back to chemical engineers and companies. So that was a big shift because designers could modulate composites or some resins that could be cured at ambient temperature. So it was about the new propriety of materials. It was about new materials that had entirely new proprieties or old materials that behaved in a completely different way. So it was a brand new world. And uh, right now, materials are, uh, in many cases, not about new propriety or new behaviors, but rather about their life cycles, where they come from and where they're going to go. So all of a sudden, materials have a life and have a life that continues before and after their presence on Earth. And I think that that makes the whole expressivity of materials completely different, and they, it makes them for, makes for different tools in the hands of designers and architects. Sometimes they design these materials themselves. You've seen yesterday with Myling Loco how uh, being you know an architectural engineer of sorts of materials can be um, can be really intense. But also in other cases, it's just uh, learning how to use them in a very different way. I mean, all of the buildings and the skyscrapers that are made out of wood that are now really attempted in every part of the world are an example but I could give you a list of examples that goes on forever it's just that we went from looking for the brand new way to use materials to instead trying to understand how they fit in the world again looking to the future what do you think is the future of the museum what is the role of the museum it's a very interesting question and um, I'm sure that many a museum person is thinking about that same question right now um, about um, about when was it? In 2012. Yeah, it's the 10th anniversary now. I started doing this MoMA R&D salons. You know, when people say I'm the director of R&D and MoMA, people think that I'm testing new technologies. Uh-uh. No, I'm trying to prove that museums can be the R&D of society. So that's the idea. You know, it, the idea for R&D came in 2008 when the financial sector collapsed. And I thought that that was an opportunity for the cultural sector to show that it could save the world, right? So say, okay, culture provides that kind of slow progress that is dependable, sustainable, humane, you know, so uh, that's how we started. And these salons have as themes topics that are relevant to everyone, death, aging, protest, angels, hair, you know, so we, we, we had many different topics. And the last one was about the, the store and the street. It talked about what the pandemic did, and it kind of 
completely emptied so many of the street fronts uh, in New York. And so it was thinking about that. So these salons really aim at showing the world, showing the public there and then the world, that museums are places where you can find inspiration also for very personal and real problems, not just places of contemplation, even though that's an important function too. I believe that many museums are trying to connect more with the with reality and with the world um, without changing necessarily their, between quotes, offering or collections, uh, but rather curating in a way that connects the past with the present and helps people figure out how to move in the future. So that's what I like. I think that what's really changing is the attitude of curators and directors and uh, education departments are not called anymore education. They're called learning and engagement, for instance. You know, that's how MoMA renamed itself. So the idea of broadening audiences is what you hear all the time. But I think that being more useful is something that we really need to find a way to be. Do you think that the digitization and, and the virtual museum and exhibitions helps that? Definitely. It's just, you know, you have to be aware of the fact that the, the, the space online is not the space, the physical space, that they're complementary and not one, the mirror of the other. So, so long as you know how to use either space and all the other spaces in between, you can definitely use them to curate. I've done it several times, even in very simple terms in simple ways like a few years ago there was this uh, exhibition design and violence that never became an exhibition but my co-curator Jamer Hunt and I decided to just open a WordPress site and call in favors and it became this great website and and a book and a a MoMA book so you can use either space you can curate in a public program a documentary or a website or metaverse or even in a gallery. To kind of wrap up, as someone whose job it is is to collect without making it yours, like some of the objects we talked about or kind of bring together and observe, if you had to make a time capsule of this very specific moment, what kinds of things would you would you put in it? It's interesting. I would still put the at sign. I would put a model of the coronavirus. What else would I put? I think it's a difficult question. I would have to think about it for a while. But I tend to think of all round things. It's funny. (laughs) It's like everything that comes to mind is round, which is funny. But um, I would would put the globe, but I would put the globe showing it as systems. And it's it's like systematic. So I, I just think of spherical objects that talk about interconnectedness, ecosystems, uh, fragility, and identity, you know, and uh, these are the first things that come to mind. So I would never start curating the time capsule by objects, but rather I would think first of the themes and then I would pick the right object, which is how I curate shows. So thank you for the question. It's kind of like provoking for my thoughts. That's great. Maybe mm-hmm. next time we meet, we can mm-hmm. talk more about it. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, it's been Simone. really insightful. Thank you. Thank you.